Well, good morning. Good morning, online people. If you are new or visiting with us this morning, maybe just raise your hand. Like, is this, who's this first time here? Amazing. Wow, it's like a lot of you. Okay. So, always very exciting. We always joke that's like, uh, this sounds really loud to me, so I'll try to talk less loud. You see people go on vacation, and it slowly is less people, and then finally it's just like this pile of ashes, but then in the fall, out of the ashes rises the phoenix, and it gets out of control. So my name's Brian, one of the pastors here. Really would love to have the opportunity to connect with some of you guys after. I think we're doing lunch after in the park or something. Because now I hear... There we go. Perfect. All right. Well, it's hard to believe, but we are already like over halfway through our study of the Gospel of Mark. We've been plugging our way along through this for a while now. And if you have a Bible or a Bible uh, application on your phone or iPad or whatever, you can open it to Mark chapter 8. Uh, the gospel was written down by Mark, but was probably dictated to him by Peter, which was good teamwork because Peter was a fisherman and he probably, writing was probably not like high skill. And so Mark's writing this stuff down. And their intended audience was non-Jewish people, which is good for us. Most of us would fall into that category, I believe. Some of you may uh, claim that heritage, but most of us don't. And we subsequently don't necessarily have a deep Uh, ingrained knowledge of the Old Testament. We haven't memorized the Torah. Uh, And so we're able to engage with Mark a little bit easier, say, than other Gospels that would demand a little bit more of us in that area. We will be going back to the Old Testament a couple of times today to flesh stuff out, but uh, we have it a little bit easier studying Mark. Now, last week, most of you were not here for last week, it appears, but some of you, there was this moment where Jesus is kind of giving like a pop quiz to his disciples, trying to get them to process through what he's been doing with his miracles, particularly the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, and they basically fail this quiz. They don't really understand. uh, They don't get Jesus and who he is or what he's here to do. But this morning, we're going to start, we're going to see the disciples start to get it, start to get who Jesus is, or at least Peter does. But then Jesus goes, he's like, great. He's like, then goes in a totally new direction that no one was anticipating. And the disciples, they kind of hate it. They like hate it with their whole hearts. It's a very uh, uh, interesting point in Mark. And because at this moment, Mark is about to sort of do the big reveal. He's going to pull the cover off of who Jesus is and what he's really planning to do. So are you excited? You should be more excited. This is a great passage. You guys are lucky that we're doing this one this morning. All right, so I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get to work. Uh, Spirit, we ask again just that you would be present. You alone are able to bring the word to life. Um, We we, we ask that you would cause uh, minds to be illuminated, um, eyes made to see, ears made to hear, that you would give us hearts of flesh, uh, that you, Jesus, would receive much glory this morning, that we would know you better. And we ask that you would do this uh, for your glory and our joy. Amen. Well, shortly after my wife, Severine, and I got married, I started a job uh, as a youth pastor at a church in Oregon. And for like 
five or six years, we did very traditional North American youth ministry. Have any of you ever been exposed to this? The, the games, the Bible studies, the retreats, the gutter of ice cream and bananas at the beginning of the year, like all of this fun stuff. Totally used up my, all the energy from my 20s uh, doing youth ministry. And, uh, but years, years uh, seven and eight, everything changed. Been doing it a long time, even like not full time before that, so like 15 years in total. We're not seeing the results that from all of that effort, we weren't seeing longevity in the hearts of the youth, and so we changed everything. We wanted to see them have something that instead of growing out of something, they could grow into something. So we like did this crazy experiment where we planted a church inside the church, and the youth ran everything. They were the leaders, they did the leadership teams, uh, small groups, worship, technology, security, kids ministry. They did everything but preach. And then, so we ran that, we ran like a worship gathering on Saturday nights, and for two years, we, we did this, and it was awesome. And, um, and so one of the things early on in that is I wanted the kids to, the youth, to really have a deep appreciation for the person of Jesus. And so we did this four-week sermon series called Real Jesus. I had this picture of like a bobblehead Jesus on the graphic. Kids like that. And I did four weeks and I was kind of like looking at the different kinds of phases of Jesus we see in Scripture. I titled them Pre-Jesus, Homeless Jesus, Super Saiyan Jesus, and finally Angry Jesus. And I'll leave it to your imaginations to suss out what I mean by each of those. And probably wouldn't preach it exactly the same way. Now, because most of you are not going to get Dragon Ball Z references, unless you do. You know who you are. Um, I say that in love. Uh, so, anyways, the, the point is, is that the person of Jesus, as presented in the Bible, is complicated. It's complicated. And because of that, many of us, we all have our own ideas when we think about Jesus. Different things come to our mind. Maybe Jesus is your friend. Uh, maybe Jesus is a little bit scary to you, or you think he's like, a little angry with you or something like that. Um, Hopefully you see Jesus as your savior. Uh, Some people, a lot of people profess that they love Jesus. Um, That can get weird though. Sometimes I've interacted with young ladies. Complicated in our own hearts, the way that we view Jesus, but getting the person of Jesus right is so important. And this is the question that Jesus throws at his disciples at this point in the gospel account. Who do the people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? So if you have your Bibles, we're going to jump in uh, Mark chapter 8, verse, starting at verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So Jesus asked them this question, and he gives them different answers. We're going to look at each of these. Um, So what's the first one? What's the first one that they threw out there? First name, John the Baptist. Why would people think this? Well, Jesus and John were cousins, you know, so with the beards, there may have been some family resemblance. Uh, But more likely, it's that John's specific ministry was to sort of pave the way, to herald the ministry of Jesus. And so as Jesus' ministry started to take off, John's ministry began to taper. So much so that uh, John's disciples, he had his own disciples, they kind of got 
they're kind of get frustrated. Like Jesus' thing is blowing up. Our thing seems to be getting smaller. And John's like, no, no, that's the way it's supposed to be. He must increase, I must decrease. And so much so, John goes into prison. And we saw a few weeks ago that John is beheaded. So John literally ceases to exist, and now there's this Jesus figure. So some people were a little confused about this. But this was a charitable, sort of amazing title to be given, to be seeing John the Baptist, because he was sort of an amazing, famous guy at that time. People really loved him, hated him. He was like, he was a big deal. So, and Jesus himself said John was like the best person who ever lived. So this is a great reverse endorsement for Jesus, but he wasn't. John the Baptist. What was the next name that was thrown out? Elijah. Elijah. Who is Elijah? Well, this was even like John the Baptist was like a nice thing to be called John the Baptist. That's nice of you to say. Uh, but Elijah was going even higher. So in the Old Testament, prophet, probably second only to Moses in like the stuff that he did. You can't, we don't have time to go into his whole life, but just in 1 Kings 17, we see crazy stuff. We see him, he's praying judgment over Israel's leaders, and he's like, praise that it won't rain, and it doesn't rain for three years until he asks for it to start raining again. And he's sitting in the wilderness, and birds are bringing him food, and he's drinking from the brook, but the brook dries up because, you know, no rain. So he goes and lives with this widow and her son. She has like no food, this little jar of oil. She's like, you're going to eat all my oil? He's like, no, I won't. And they just keep pouring out of that same jar of oil for like a long time. Then her son dies, and he brings him back to life. So you start to think like, this kind of makes sense. Control over the weather, multiplying food, bringing people back from the dead. Plus, Elijah didn't technically die, right? He like rode up in a fiery chariot up to heaven. So maybe in Jewish people's minds, they're thinking like, Elijah's still an option. You know, he could come back the way he came, you know. So maybe this is him. He's doing all the same stuff. So this was really like for people to say this about Jesus was like top shelf. And it was very present in their minds that Elijah was like active. Like when Jesus is on the cross, he's crying out. And they're trying to figure out what Jesus is doing. And they say, oh, he's asking for help. Who do they think that he's crying out for help for? Who? Elijah. They're like, he's crying out to Elijah. Let's see if Elijah comes, right? Uh, in the very next chapter, when we see Jesus transfigured in his glory on the top of the mountain, he meets with Moses and Elijah. That was a gimme. So it's, this is a really top shelf kind of thing. But then, and then they say other prophets, kind of grab bag answer. And, but then Peter goes in and he goes all the way. And he says, I think you're the Christ, I think you're the Christ. What does that, what does that mean? A lot of times people will use uh, Christ, like Jesus Christ, like it's Jesus' last name or something. That's not right. It's a title, right? So it's like uh, Stephen the mechanic or Susan the accountant, right? Jesus the Christ. Uh, and the Christ, that word comes from the Greek Christos. It means anointed one or chosen one. The Hebrew word is hard to say. It's like or something like that, something Hebrew. Uh, but we know it as Messiah. So we have this term like Christ, Messiah, anointed one, chosen one. Chosen for what? Anointed with the power of God for what? To rescue his people, to sit on the throne of King David forever. And we have references to this figure like all throughout the Old Testament. So we're going to look at one for fun. Uh, if you still have your Bibles, you can jump quickly over to Psalm 110. This is a psalm of King David, Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. 
From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Imagine you are a first century young Jewish boy or girl, and you're living under Roman rule, like oppressive rule, right? So that means like a foreign military has moved into your town and is like running things, and they're not handing out chocolate bars or rebuilding your schools that they just blew up. They are like taxing you, and if you resist, they crucify you, literally. They like hang you on the streets, okay? So this is a bad time to grow up. And as you're growing up in this environment, you're also reading Psalm 110 and others like it, and you're thinking like the anointed one is going to come and he's going to free us from this situation, right? When he comes, what will happen? He will shatter kings. He will execute judgment. He will fill the nations with corpses. That's graphic. He will shatter chieftains. He will use his enemies then as a footstool, you know, scoop them together and rest his feet. So as a young person living under oppression, this is something that you're, you're thinking about, you're dreaming about someday this is going to happen, that the Holy One, the anointed one is going to be so anointed with the Holy Spirit for battle. It's going to be like Samson, You guys know the story of Samson? At some point, he's like so filled with the Holy Spirit and he picks up a donkey's jawbone. He kills a thousand men in one day. And you're like, I didn't know the Holy Spirit empowered people for that kind of thing. Well, he's not right now generally, but it was a thing and it can be. It can be like that. And a thousand people, if you count up how many people Keanu Reeves has killed in all those John Wick movies, it's like 299. It's not even a third of the way there yet to, to Samson. So you can, you get to begin to feel the emotion of like when Peter says, you are the Christ, this is what's moving in them. This is, this is what's, this is the sense of like so many Romans are about to die in this kingdom of peace and perfect rule from the anointed one is about to be ushered in. It's going to be epic. And the disciples are going to be right there with Jesus helping him kill all those Romans, right? They're very, very excited. And you guys watch The Chosen. I know I make reference to this a lot because it's a thing right now. And I think it's, it's awesome if you have a good biblical literacy and you can remember that 90% of it's made up in conjecture. It's interesting, kind of fills in your thought gaps. If you are new to the Bible, don't watch The Chosen. It will, you'll think it's from the Bible and it's not. It'll confuse you. But anyways, there's this episode in the second season where Jesus is off doing Jesus stuff, healing people. And they're helping with crowd control, but getting tired. And they have to go sit by the fire for a while. So they're rotating. And we never see really Jesus doing anything. We just see we're at the fire with the disciples and they're talking amongst themselves. And I think it's like James the taller or older or whatever his name is. And he's like, you know, helping people's nice. It's nice, isn't it? It's nice helping people. But when are we going to get to the fighting? And he's like super serious. He's like, I have been practicing since I was a little boy with my wooden sword for the Messiah to come and to kill Romans. He's like, I even gave my brother a scar. Show him your scar. Like, it's this thing. You're watching this. You're like, right, violence. They had every reason to expect that the Messiah's visit, the Christ, would be a violent visit. And this is because from their vantage point in history, they could not really see everything that the prophets were doing. There's this principle in like interpreting Old Testament prophecy called the telescopic principle. So like a telescope, anyone have a telescope at home? There's three lenses, right, at least. And so there's like different layers to things. And 
So the way you apply this is like when Isaiah or someone is doing prophecy, there's usually an immediate contemporary application for that prophecy, right, right away. But then you can also see that he's also talking about stuff in the future. And from the vantage point of the disciples or anyone who's like pre-New Testament uh, being written, they're sitting between lenses one and two, and they're like contemporary, future. But the future, the two lenses are overlaid. They're superimposed. They can't distinguish them. So they look forward and they see like Jesus coming to die for his enemies and Jesus coming to kill his enemies as one visit. And they can't tell the difference. Now, us in our position, we're able to look back and say, okay, contemporary, Jesus' first visit and future visit. And we can see the difference between Jesus coming as lamb, sacrificial lamb, and lion, tribe of Judah, lion, the lion of Judah, Jesus in his fearsome power. Uh, My step, not step, my father-in-law spent a couple of years traveling the world in like a Westphalia, like, van thing. He went to like, I don't know, 50 countries or something with his buddies. Somehow he talked the Canadian government into paying for part of it or giving him a letter and anyways. But at one point he's holding this lion, like a baby lion. And he said, the power. (laughs) It's like this, I mean, you've held a cat and you're like mildly afraid because you're like, he might scratch me. But to hold a baby lion, he's like, it was insane. He's like, this thing, if it wanted to, could just take me apart. Like, there's nothing you can stop it from doing to you at that point. The power, baby lion. So, you know, this is why, like, in Narnia, Jesus is like Aslan, big lion, scary. Um, so there's that power. They couldn't distinguish between the lion and the lamb. So they had every expectation that, you know, they would, there would be violence here. And so there's this distinguish that we see now that, that Jesus was coming now. The first visit was to inaugurate his kingdom. The second visit will be to consummate his kingdom. The first visit, he rescues people from their sin internally. In the second visit, he's going to rescue people from oppression externally. In this first visit, he's sort of getting engaged to his people, to the church. But in the second visit, it's the wedding day and then sort of like a honeymoon eternity experience. So when Peter says, you are the anointed one, Jesus is like, you know, you've hit it on the head. He doesn't say it. He kind of does like this. You can see it in the text. There's almost this like silent, like, you got it, but don't, shh, don't say anything. Because the claim of Christ was a violent and insurrectionist sort of claim. Jesus is on a timetable. Yes, he would die, but he didn't want to die like the next day from them spreading the news, the Christ is here, get ready to suffer. Like, no, it was like he, he, he was, had to put the shush on that so that they wouldn't go around and telling that. And at this point, Jesus could have been like, good talk, good talk, guys. Let's go back to healing people and let's just keep going forward. But he doesn't. He goes weird extra places and goes in a direction that the disciples were just not ready to absorb. So in the, first, in the next few verses, a couple things, which we'll look at in a second. Jesus brings up a fourth character, right? We've talked about John the Baptist, Elijah, the Christ. Then Jesus brings up this son of man title, the son of man figure. And it, again, it's an inference, but he infers here to the disciples that he's, he's applying this title to himself. I am the son of man. And so we'll look at the actual text in a moment, but let's go and find where the son of man thing comes from. It comes from the visions of the prophet Daniel. We'll find in Daniel chapter 7. And I'm going to start reading in verse 9 for a little bit of context. This is sort of a, a, like the book of Revelation. This is sort of an apocalyptic vision. So it's apocalyptic Jewish literature is the narrative style here. 
As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and a thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. So you get this end times kind of picture, judgment day kind of scenario. I'm going to skip down to verse 13. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And this idea is that it's in the appearance of a, like a human being looking person. And, I, and the one that came like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all na- peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So this should sound a little bit familiar to us. Like this is the kind of thing that sounds like the Messiah, sounds like the anointed one. But the problem was there's this this passage and some others make the son of man seem like he's receiving the glory of God in a way like he is God, but he's also a human being. So the, the teachers of the law at this day were unsure what to do with this. Just like we have a couple, there's a couple passages in the New Testament we're like, man, no one really knows exactly what that means. It's not crucial, but we're not sure. Um, in this way, it's the same thing. They're kind of like not sure what to do with the son of man figure. And uh, we, of course, have no problem with the idea of God and man being united in the person of Jesus. Because just like we have more perspective on those lenses of prophecy, we have more perspective on the doctrine of the Trinity. We are comfortable from the teaching of the New Testament, the idea that God is one, unitary, but he's three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And once you know that, you go back in the Old Testament, you're like, oh, I see it. From Genesis onward, I see that. But they didn't have that. And so they really struggled with this idea that the Son could give up um, the divine lifestyle and take on human flesh in the person of Jesus. And so now Jesus is saying, that's him. He's like, yeah, I'm the Christ. He's like, but son of man, we're going to go with that title. Because of the ambiguity, he could use it. And everyone's like, what, do you, what does he mean by that? And they wouldn't like stone him right, right away. And... Um, and this is, so we've kind of gone now from like power to power. Like maybe he's John the Baptist, maybe he's Elijah. He's the Christ, and now he's the son of man figure. And understandably, the disciples are getting really pumped. This is like a dream come true to them. They cannot believe this is happening. Uh, they're out, you know, sharpening their swords. They're thinking we're going to go to war with magic powers. Like they've seen Jesus calm two storms. If you can calm a storm, maybe you can make a storm right, into the faces of the Romans, you know. He can multiply bread and loaves. He can multiply arrows. I shoot one, he's like, multiply, and it's like cloud of arrows. Like all these cool things that they're picturing. And remember, these guys are like 15, 16, 18. Maybe Peter was married, he's a little older. But like these were young teenage guys, and someone's telling them like, we're going to battle, but with superpowers. So it's like a Marvel movie is actually about to happen to you guys. So they're just like shaking with excitement and testosterone rage. And then Jesus throws the biggest, wettest blanket you have ever seen over all that excitement in this, next, in this one verse. So picking up in verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. So he's like, gets them all excited. He's like, now I'm going to be beat up, made fun of, and killed. That's the plan in their leg. What? He did mention that he would rise again, but I don't think, it kind of seems like from reading later, their comprehension, 
they didn't seem to hear anything after the word killed. It was like their brains just shut off at that point, and they, and they missed that. Um, it was just such a hard left turn for them to take. Jesus could not have said anything more shocking, so much so that Peter, even though he's still sort of riding high, you know, he had his moment in the sun, got his gold star for getting the Messiah thing right. That was a stretch. Um, but then now he actually has the gall to put, pull Jesus aside and confront him. Like, Jesus, you know, that's not our plan. That's not what's going to happen. You need to get back on the program, right? Let's do the sword thing. That's what's supposed to happen. And I'm pretty sure this is like the only place in Scripture where someone like chides Jesus. There was that part where his family thought he had gone crazy and tried to like bring him back. This is like Jesus does what he wants. And he doesn't do what we want or what we think he's supposed to be doing. And we're like, no, you know, that's not the plan, Jesus. He's like, well, it is. So, And so these, this is what's happening here. And for sure, like, it, it just points, it's, it's crazy that Peter would do this, but it points out how jarring this was for them, how, how hard of a transition. Because certainly if Jesus had said all of these things, and then he had just said, put this, we're just patience, put your swords away, we're just going to keep helping people for now. And they'd be disappointed, and they'd be fine, you know. And, uh, but they would have been okay, they would have sucked it up. Uh, but the, being killed was too much. So Peter tells them off, and Jesus famously replies, get behind me, Satan. Peter's essentially flying high and then shut down harder than anyone else in history. You've correctly identified the Savior of the world, and now you are Satan. So it's important to remember at this point that this is basically Peter communicating this through Mark writing it down, which it's important because it's little windows into what's happening here like this that help uh, add to the historical veracity of the text, meaning it proves... When you do this kind of analysis of historical text, you look for these kinds of things to prove that they are real and accurate, not inflated. Because if Peter was making this all up and embellishing the account of Jesus and telling Mark, you know, just add in this miracle or whatever, why on earth would you make yourself look like such a fool? Why on earth would you include that? And we know from the book of Acts, there were already like authority and leadership squabbles. People are like kind of having a bit of power struggle. So Peter should have written this totally differently to cement his power in his position if he was looking to do that. Instead, we see something very authentic and raw taking place in Peter's life, and he's putting himself out there in a big way. The same thing, the fact that the Gospels record. He denies Jesus three times and then is afraid of a servant girl and then goes and cries about it. It's like embarrassing, right? No one makes up witness accounts about themselves. If they're making up, they don't make them so embarrassing. These accounts are real and accurate. So Peter does this. Jesus corrects him. And then from this point, we see Jesus unpack a very different worldview, a worldview that will come to define real, authentic, orthodox Christianity and the church for the next 2,000 years, what he's about to unpack. And it's simply this, the idea that the followers of Jesus shouldn't go on the offensive and kill anyone to set up sort of this earthly power structure and kingdom, but instead we should lose our lives to proclaiming the gospel to build Jesus's kingdom in hearts. This is the way of Jesus. And sadly, we can look throughout history and see many, many, many examples of people who claim to be the church and claim to be Christians who do not walk in this path. Most recent example would be these residential schools, many of which were Catholic or Protestant Christian schools. And yet the horrors the horrors they did in Jesus' name of these poor kids is unbelievable. And they're going to have to answer to Jesus for that. So we cannot judge uh, Jesus and his prescribed teaching by people who claim to follow him. We need to look at his teachings here. 
in, in this, that he reveals this secret, backwards, upside-down kingdom ethic that God is going to take great pleasure in winning by losing, by losing his life. So we're going to see here uh, final verses, picking up partway through uh, verse 32. So if you've moved away from Mark 8, you can go back there in your Bible. So here it is. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. There are many forms of... uh, Martial arts that teach something like a, young, like a smaller person can defend against a larger person by using their weight and inertia against them, right? Somebody's like, you see this in like, who's watched martial arts movies before? Really? Oh, man, you guys are missing it. Evan's watching them all for you. They can be quite entertaining. Anyways, you see them like punching and they like, ooh, just gently draw them back. And now they can punch them faster or whatever. Or they can judo flip them onto the ground. And you're like, yes, judo flip. It's always satisfying to see a solid judo flip. This is what Jesus is essentially doing by defeating Satan, sin, and death by dying. It's like the ultimate judo flip in human history. Nobody saw this coming, least of all the disciples who are now trying to uh, process this and it's blowing their minds. So from this point on, that's where Jesus is going. We now know who he is. We know what he's about, and he's marching towards the cross bit by bit. And for sure, as we see in our passage, someday Jesus is going to come back in a second visit with the glory and the angel army, and there will be the violence. Uh, but that's not this visit. He didn't come to destroy his enemies. Uh, He came to die for them. And that's really good news for you and I because we are God's enemies. Naturally, we're born as objects of wrath. We are born into rebellion against God, doing what we think is right. I, I don't know if there's like a, if this generation, if this time on the earth had like a catchphrase, it would be like, stay true to you, right? Stay true to your heart. Your heart is wicked. Don't stay true to your heart. There's bad things in there. Uh, that we should stay true to the loving sort of parental guidance of the Father who made us, the Creator who has wound us up and has made everything away a certain way that we should follow that way, yet we fail. We fail constantly, and every one of those failures is is a sort of missing the mark, which we call sin, and yet Jesus enters into our sin. He takes it to the cross. He crucifies it, and then his life was lived in perfect obedience, and he gifts us that. He gifts us his perfect obedience and trades it for our disobedience. He gives us his perfect righteousness and takes away our unrighteousness and restores us to the Father, not as enemies, but as adopted children. No payment for this, no obligation, just as a, just as a free gift to us. And not a gift that we receive and nothing happens, but a gift when honestly and faithfully received is so transformative that our lives begin to change. We begin to walk that same path that Jesus laid out, the path of the cross, to be anointed by that same spirit, not for violence, but to win by losing our lives. 
as missionaries to the city, and as martyrs, if need be. There are a lot of Christians stuck in Afghanistan right now, and they will not be with us long. They are going to enter into glory. And yet that's how the Lord chooses to win. And rivers of joy are available to us when we walk in this path. It's weird to talk about, but like there have been moments in life and in ministry where I have tasted the joy of the Lord and the riches of his pleasure in the midst of suffering for his mission. And I can tell you that it is, it is imperishable. It is worth it. It is unbelievable. And when you choose to walk in the path of Christ, it is only briefly painful because in return we receive the better thing. It's like when you're super thirsty and you have brown, lukewarm water and you're like, I don't know, it's not filtered. And instead you get fresh, clear water that's cold, maybe has some bubbles in it. People like the bubble water right now, soda stream. And it's just like once you've had soda stream, cold ice water, you never go back to that mud puddle outside your house. You just don't. Why? We like the better thing. But we're blinded to the fact that Jesus offers us the better thing because between us and it is, is this, this cross that we have to go through that to get to the better thing. And so we, we shy back and yet Jesus draws us, draws us in his way. This is available to you. Again, whoever, lose, whoever would save his life will lose it. If we cling to it, we will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Because Jesus says in this, he's, he is coming back. And it is going to be scary. The Revelation says it's like people who are still his enemies, who have not turned to him, will wish they never existed. They will ask the mountains to fall and hide them from the face of the Lamb who is coming in wrath against their sin and in righteousness. And I, I don't like to draw attention to like make Jesus scary um, because the, the goal in that is not to have a fear response to Jesus because that is not lasting um, but instead that you would see him worthy. You would see him as glorious. You would see him worthy of your allegiance to his cause, that you would kneel before his worthiness, and you would give him praise. Worthy is the Lord. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. You alone are God. You alone are worthy of our praise, Lord. Uh, we're going to wrap up with this. Who is Jesus to you? As we've been processing this question, Maybe you're like picking up new little things. It's nuancing your understanding of who Jesus is. You could be in a few different places this morning. I like to talk about Jesus as Savior, Treasure, and King. Uh, each of those being important in its own way. But you have to start out by knowing him. And you might not know him. And the Bible says that Jesus stands at the door of your heart and he's knocking. And if you open the door, he will come in, sit with you, and eat with you. And he will even redecorate if you let him. And you should. And many of you here today, I believe, have done that. You've confessed your sin and with his help turned from it. And instead, uh, Jesus has rescued from it. And you've made Jesus your Savior. Now, unfortunately, a lot of people in North America, evangelical Christianity, stop, strangely, at that point. They're like, Jesus is my Savior. I'm saved. Right? And like, there's this weird sense of like, it's done. Box is ticked. Jesus saved me. But Jesus didn't come just to save us from wrongdoing. He came to save us from wrong loving, wrong treasuring. Our hearts, even as followers of Jesus, sometimes still cling to and treasure other things besides him and him alone, or him as preeminent in our hearts. And the Bible is super clear. He's like, 
Love God with all your heart, love him first, love him most, right? It's, a, it's an important thing. So as you inspect your heart, you're like, do I love him most? Jesus doesn't want you just to stop cheating on your taxes. He wants you to stop loving money, right? And to love him instead. So as you inspect your heart, you're like, do I love Jesus most? If you don't, that's sort of missing that mark, which we'd call a sin. And what do we do with sin? Do we just try harder? No, we go back to the Savior step. We say, Jesus, rescue me from my heart. Rescue me from my heart that is loving other things. You save me from my sin. Rescue my heart even more. Take over more. Redecorate more so that I love you first. And then when you begin to do that, what happens is you start to edge off the throne in your life and Jesus sits down on the throne in your life and he becomes your king. Now you're like locked in. Savior, treasure, king. And then walking that path of giving up your life carrying your cross, putting to death your other loves and crucifying them. This becomes more natural as you progress towards Jesus. It's not just pray a prayer and get saved. It's that going back to that well and asking Jesus to change you more and more and more. Don't just be saved by Jesus. Know him, treasure him, and seek first his kingdom. And there's such exquisite joy that waits for us, those who enter his kingdom. There's going to be, it's going to be so awesome at the wedding feast of the Lamb to see the glory of God face to face, to look upon his face, to be blessed by him and know him. And we're not worthy for this, but Jesus makes us worthy. So who is Jesus? May he be Savior, King, treasure over your life, over our church, over this city. May his name be known as great in this place. He is worthy. Let me pray for us. Lord, we... Our hearts are fickle. We do not naturally love you as we ought. Thank you for saving us, for not just coming with a sword, but coming and dying for our sins and making a way for us to know the Father, that the Spirit of God can live in us and we are not destroyed instantly. That we can know you. We ask that you would redecorate our hearts, that you would take the parts that we keep separate and that you would claim them, that your rule would extend over every part of our being, and that we would joyfully and willfully walk in your path towards our own cross, whatever that may be, whatever you have planned for us, Lord. We ask that you would do that, each person in our church, in all of our locations, and people watching online right now, Lord, that you would call us to this walk and that the city would experience your presence through us as you intended. We ask that you would do this for our joy and for your glory. Amen.